Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. With me this week will be Ross McCullough. Ross McCullough has recently uh, written a new book called Freedom and Sin, Evil in a World Created by God with Erdman's Press. Uh, Dr. McCullough explores the question of how it's possible that humans can be free um, and God to not be responsible for sin and and a few other questions in, in a sort of similar vein. Uh, it is a kind of technical philosophical conversation, but I think it a very helpful and interesting proposal to try to solve some of these um, you know, perennial problems in theology and philosophy. Um, and so we're very grateful for Dr. McCullough for taking the time to talk with us, uh, as well as for Urban's Press for providing a copy of this book. Um, I am sorry for the delay in getting out a new episode. I know it has been a while. Uh, my um, my assistant Grant has been out of the country, um, and he's doing some uh, some study abroad stuff. And also, I've just had a very busy semester of a lot of classes, and and it's just uh, been a little overwhelmed. Um, so so thank you for bearing with me. Um, you can find our uh, more information about the podcast on a history of Christian theology dot com, as well as on Facebook. Uh, we appreciate all ratings and reviews on iTunes, um, and uh, we appreciate you listening. So we'll see you next time. Anyway, I should say, we have with us today on the History of Christian Theology, uh, Ross McCullough, that I, I don't know how you pronounce the... That's the, right, McCullough, yeah. Okay. Um, and um, there's a there's a th- episode of 30 Rock that I was thinking of where Do- Donaghy, uh, he talks about the different ways to pronounce Donaghy and Donaghy or something in the Gaelic. <laughs> Um, so I didn't know if there was some Gaelic pronunciation I was missing here, but uh, all right, Ross I I'm, I'm, <laughs> the McCulloughs have been in America long enough that that's lost to time. Okay, <laughs> very good. Uh, and Ross uh, has Dr. McCullough Ross has written uh, a, uh, a book called "Freedom and Sin: Evil in a World Created by God" uh, with Erdman's. Um, publishing company and so we're grateful to Erdman's for providing a copy of the book for the interview um and uh and and I think this is largely taken from uh your dissertation at Yale University is that correct like an edited form of that or that's right it's a revised form of the dissertation okay um and but one thing that we we were talking just as we were getting started and uh it, it was interesting to hear your kind of uh notion of like interest in analytic philosophy alongside your your uh, Platonism, right? So you have some self-avowed Platonism at the beginning. I so one of the other guys who has been on the podcast with me uh, is is Trevor Adams, and he's doing his PhD in philosophy of religion and and sort of the analytic type. And he is very uncomfortable uh, with calling himself a Platonist. Uh, and my other friend who's on the podcast, Tom, doesn't really like the Platonism thing. So I'm sort of surprised to hear and someone who's interested in analytic kind of theology be so uh, warm uh, towards uh, some Platonism. So how, how does that work for you? Yeah, well, you know, Platonism is said in many ways. Uh, uh, so I, um, I'm i a Christian Platonist. I, I, don't, uh, I don't shy away from that label. Um, for me, that represents the kind of broad stream of philosophical theology in Christianity up until through the Reformation, through the Protestant scholastics, until maybe Schleiermacher, roughly speaking. Um, and then and then it continues on after that, of course, too, but it becomes more disputed. In the, in the analytic world, Platonism um, is, a, is actually a fairly popular position even among non-Christians. Um, so okay. by, by, that, uh, by that, philosophers tend to mean 
a kind of realism about universals um, in the way Plato did. So something like justice exists. How does it exist? You know, if you don't believe in God, so so Augustine's solution to this, how does it exist? It, ex it exists in the mind of God in some sense. And Christians generally take up something like that. Uh, the point is that it exists in some way independently of us. So we can we can true we can make true statements about justice and false statements about justice that correspond to some some universal outside of our heads. And there's very strong reasons to want to say that, right? To say that there is some standard of justice that isn't just sort of what we invent as a society, um, or even as a whole species. That it that some things are just unjust, and there, that's a true statement. Um, and so even non-Christians, even non-theists in the philosophical world will be Platonists about things like that. The other, uh, another way place it comes up is with numbers. So math statements like one plus one equal two, that seems to be true in a way that's objective, that is independent of our sort of social practices. And so, so some people are Platonists in that sense, because there, there must be some truth of the, to the proposition one plus one equals two that exists out there in some way. Of course, how it exists is very weird if you're not a Christian. If you're a Christian, you just ground it in God. It's a, it's a right. thought in the mind of God or something. And so non-Christian Platonists have, have a kind of metaphysical problem. They're a problem of, of their ontology, of sort of how these things exist, what kind of being they have. Christians, Christians kind of solve that. Um, and so in that, in that general sense, maybe even your friends would be Christian Platonists. Um, uh, that is follow the sort of basic stuff in Augustine. Now, as you alluded to, I'm, I'm a Christian Platonist in a slightly more robust sense than that. Um, again, this more robust sense that that characterizes the tradition, the mainstream in the tradition, uh, for for almost two thousand years. Um, and that would be that would include things like um, the idea that evil is a privation mm -hmm. that comes out of the Platonist tradition, um, the pre-Christian Platonist tradition. Uh, Augustine famously gets it from the Neoplatonists before he becomes a Christian, but it's also picked. It's also used in the Christian tradition even before Augustine. Um, so if you read much patristic theology, you'll know it's in Athanasius, it's in the Cappadocians, it's in Augustine, um, and that's uh, that's an important. Um, important premise for for kind of like basic Christian philosophical theology in my mind. Um, and there's people who want to get rid of it, but I think you give up too much if you get rid of it. Um, other things, this is this gets in, again, closer to the argument of the book or the structure of the book. Um, things like the threefold, God's threefold causality of, of creation, that God is the efficient cause, God is the exemplary cause, and God is the final cause of all that exists. That's a that's a Neoplatonist idea. That's part of this broad Christian Platonism. And again, if you if you if you talk to the Protestants, if you talk to the Catholics in the 16th and 17th centuries, broadly speaking, they'll all agree with these things. So it's not really a, a confessional um, issue until later. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, that's and, and we've had uh, we had Dr. Uh, uh, David Bentley Hart on talking a little bit about Aristotelian causes and sort of and, and others will know that in Aristotle, there are the four, you know, formal, efficient, uh, material and final, I guess. Right. Uh, something like that. Uh, so it, it, in the, the platonic concept, you're just and that's what you're using in this book is primarily right, uh, relying on this threefold notion of of causation. Right. Rather than than the more expanded version. Well, so what happens, the Neoplatonists take, are sort of fusing Aristotle and Plato. Mm. And so they take Aristotle's fourfold scheme and they add this, this sort of more platonic idea of an exemplary cause, which we can go into what exactly that is. And then also, um, so Proclus does this most explicitly in his commentary on the Timaeus. He also adds a sixth cause, an instrumental cause. Um, it seems like maybe that's a species of efficient cause. But what you end up with is this, is this more complicated scheme 
where you have two kinds of causes, two Aristotelian causes that are ingredient in the thing, in the effect, that would be the material cause and the formal cause. So a thing has matter, a thing has form. But those are part of the parts of the thing, metaphysical parts, but parts of the thing. Um, so, so external causes like God aren't going to be the material cause of the universe, right. aren't going to be the formal cause of the universe, because that would be a kind of pantheism. Um, but you have these other three causes, the efficient cause, the final cause, and then this exemplary cause that the, the Neoplatonists bring in from Plato to supplement Aristotle's scheme. And that's, uh, the, those get ascribed to God. So God is the threefold cause of the world. God's not going to be, because it's not pantheism, God's only going to be those three causes. Does that make sense? You sort of mm -hmm. tracking with me there, yeah. And so, so that's uh, that. That's kind of how these things get Christianized, um, and then also, you know, the Muslims do a similar kind of thing. So it also gets, it just gets sort of monotheistized, as it were. Right. Yeah. No, that's very helpful. Um, and uh, well, and and we could, you know, use that as a um, as a stepping stone, as a launching pad into the broader argument of the book. And one of the like sort of fundamental uh, premises is this idea of God being non-competitive with humans, uh, right? So, what kind of a cause God is, um, and and how that relates to to human freedom and human action, um, is one of the one of the major working. Uh, uh, parts of this book, right? So, if so, as I understand it, uh, you say that that God is non-competitive uh, with humans, and and so I, I remember first encountering this with Herbert McCabe, uh, just reading it sort of offhand uh, in um, in in my sort of PhD work, and I like I so just as some background, and some of the listeners will know this. Like I was raised Southern Baptist, uh, and um, and also went to a Reformed high school, so I have kind of Presbyterian. Uh, Baptist sort of roots, but this idea of non-competition, like the way that you sedate it in the book, like, you know, I remember when, when I kind of was like first, uh, it wasn't even until I was like in my late thirties where I was like, Oh wait, what does that mean? Uh, I just, I always just these took these two things to be necessarily competitive. Um, and, and so it was kind of like an eye opening way to think about this differently. So can you say a little bit about that premise? Like what, and why, uh, why that, how that sort of changes the argument of this, uh, the, the whole book, right? It leads into, as you say, into theodicy and into so many other realms. Uh, but it's, but it's really important for how this argument works. Yeah, that's right. So, so the idea, the basic idea is that our action and God's action aren't on the same plane. It's not, they don't form like a pie chart and you can say, oh, it's 50% us, 50% God, or 90% God, 10% us. There's not, there's not a kind of zero sum competition between the two. Instead, our action is 100% ours and 100% God's. That's the idea. So it's non-competitive. They're on different they're on different levels, if you like, or sometimes one way of picturing it is that our actions are on this kind of horizontal plane, and then God's action is on a kind of vertical level, sustaining that whole horizontal plane. So for any any particular thing in creation, it could be caused by us or by other creatures, right? Um, by including by inanimate creatures, the sun warming a rock or something. So it's caused entirely. Why is the why is the rock warm? You can give an entire description of why the rock is warm in terms of the sun and the other environmental factors. But then there's also a, an order of explanation that involves God doing it, God doing the whole thing, God doing, sustaining the sun in, in existence, sustaining the rock in existence, and then moving the sun to act is somehow it's how it's just, sometimes it's described this way. So sustaining the sun's action of warming the rock 
and then sustaining the effect of the rock being warm. So everything in that kind of horizontal chain of causes, which at one level is a kind of full description of what's going on. Everything there also needs to be explained in terms of God's action. Um, and so that's that's the basic non, non-competitive intuition. Um, but like you say, then it has huge far-ranging, far-ranging consequences because we have we have just sort of like inevitably we have this tendency to think of God as sort of the biggest thing in the universe, sort and and therefore alongside us in some way. Um, and so God's doing it, so I'm not doing it, right? Uh, God determined this thing to happen, therefore I wasn't free. That's often that's one of the ways it right. comes up, and this is why in the Reformed tradition you will get very strong defenses of non-competition because for them they'll say, no, you were totally free in doing it, and God totally determined it. That's not the position I end up taking, but that's the kind of danger when you go all the way down this non-competitive route. That's the the danger that I'm I'm most worried about in the book. The book is trying to prevent that from happening. But you can see how um, if you go this non-competitive route, which I think is very important to go, I think it's very important to make sure not to anthropomorphize God in this way that he becomes, you know, like the best angel, essentially, um, but that is the, the most powerful creature in some sense and therefore on our plane. It's very important that God not be that. He's the creator. He's not on the plane of creatures. Um, and, but once you go, that, then it generates some, some worries, some problems that have to be, have to be addressed. Um, one other, I mean, if you're, if you're still trying to get your head around is one other way, another analogy that some people have used. And all these analogies work to a certain extent and then break down. But one other analogy is, um, is like an author of a book. So a book, you know, the characters in the book are fully doing the actions that they that they choose in the book, they, they can choose those actions freely. Some of their actions might not be free. Some of their actions will be free. But everything in the book is caused by the author, is written by the author, is created by the author. Um, and that's not, it's just a different order of explanation. And it's not just a different order, but it's also that the, the order of explanation that attributes it to, to God, to the author of the story, to that vertical thing, that's the primary sense of causality so that's prior to everything else so for a for for a character in a story to do something to to choose freely is say say to do a sin even uh, potentially is to is to be downstream of of the the author of the character right the author of the story writing the character to do that so god's isn't just a different order of explanation god's causality is primary and our causality is secondary is downstream of that yeah well, and and a, Calvin uses that very language, the primary and the secondary. I mean, that's that's exactly. every, yeah. yeah. And and I guess so. To go into some of your worries, uh, part of at one point you use the language of asymmetry, uh, which I find very helpful. So you call uh, well, you also call your position a, uh, a, a incompatibilist determinism. I guess right. Um, did I get that right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, indeterminism. But, Incompatible. So it's it's a it's, compatibilist indeterminism. It's, yeah, I got the in yeah. in the wrong spot. <laughs> yeah. yeah, compatibilist indeterminism, um, and it was so it's very helpful. Though you t- you sort of talk about this asymmetry. So one of the ways in which your argument plays out is that humans become responsible in some sense for evil, while God is not. Um, and so that's sort of one of the cause about God in the background, uh, as you were saying. Like you want to press this: God is not a being among beings, and in, in that the greatest being in the world. So. 
so how you know so one of the ways that 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 you kind of work through in this book is how god then uh can be said to not properly be re, you know the one responsible for our evil actions so so that creates a kind of uh, asymmetry i think as i understand it right so we could say that god is the cause of what is good but not evil um and that seems you know and a straightforward kind of layman's uh reading you go well wait a minute uh how can that be possible so uh, I, I, I put it back to you. So how, how does that work out for you? Yeah. Yeah. So that's really the heart of, of what I'm trying to, to get at in the book, because it is, um, there hasn't really been a satisfactory account of how that works. So I'll, I'll give you the, I'll give you the kind of standard, the standard existing account that I'm not, that this is not my view, but this is, this is the kind of, this would be a compatibilist and determinist or predeterminist account which would say, which would still try to get God off the hook, right? So the, the Calvinists or these sort of, a certain version of Thomists, followers of Thomas Aquinas also take a view kind of like this. And it would be something like this, like, um, well, I, we could use the analogy of, of, the, of the author and the story again. This, this isn't exactly the analogy they'll all use, but some of them will use this analogy, which is, so uh, Raskolnikov kills a guy in Crime and Punishment. Spoiler alert, that happens. Uh, doesn't have, it does, it's uh, it's fairly early in the book. Right. Um, he's responsible for that murder. He should feel guilt for it. He should he any punishment that comes from it should be that um, he needs to be forgiven for it. All this kind of stuff. Dostoevsky isn't a murderer. Dostoevsky isn't responsible for the murder. It's a different plane, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, of course, Dostoevsky brings about the murder in the book because he writes it. He's the author of it. And there's no way. There's no like ability of Raskolnikov to do something other than Dostoevsky wants him to do. He's just a character. That's what it is to be a character in a story. Similarly, we are just creatures. What it is, is to do the things that God writes us to do, as it were. That makes us responsible. It can make us free. It doesn't make God responsible because it's a different order of explanation. We sort of, the, the like level of reality that we achieve isn't great enough to, to kind of inculpate God in just the same way that the reality of a story is not really real at the level that Dostoevsky's real. And so when he does something in the story, it isn't really real that he's he's not responsible for the, the equivalent thing as if he really murdered a guy. So that that's a kind of traditional explanation. And you can see how it might deal with some of those worries. Now you still have you still have certain problems, which is that it, it's it's still God doing all the stuff. So the Holocaust is still God doing it. Uh, now he's just writing a story as it were about it, but he's still doing it. Um, people going to hell, that's still God doing it. He writes them to make those, not just, he doesn't just like punish them for the bad choices. He, he makes them do the bad choices and then punishes them for it. So uh, you get into questions of how consistent this really is with the God of scripture. You know, scripture says God wills that all men be saved. Um, seems like that's going to be, you, the, the reform tradition has to tell a very complicated story that it, ultimately I find not that convincing about how that sort of stuff is going to work. So I'm opting for a different solution. Um, my solution, so my view is that actually when we when we sin, we aren't, th that choice isn't actually totally written for us by God, that we aren't determined to that or predetermined to that by God's decision to create, God's will in creation, anything like that. We can actually defect from what God wants us to do, the story that God writes for us, as it were. But we're still in this non-competitive relationship. So what we what we can't do is like create our own little world for ourselves. What we can what we can do is defect from in the sense that we can take away from God's action. God wants there to be some fullness to his story 
and then we can sort of take away take away aspects of that. So God wants us to do some good action, and then we can defect from that good action and make it less good than it would otherwise be. Ultimately, so much less good that it is a sin. Um, and that's right. that's how I want to explain sin. And this is this is a broadly Augustinian idea that we aren't efficient causes when we sin; we're deficient causes, right? So we we introduce defects into the act to which God moves us. And I'm just giving a kind of, I'm trying to, to give a more developed account of the metaphysics of that, essentially, um, especially in, when I'm talking about efficient causality. Right. And I think you probably do quote this, although I don't remember the page. But yeah, it's one of those interesting passages in City of God where Augustine essentially says you can't give an explanation for evil um, because there would it wouldn't be rational. So, so how would it be possible to explain uh, that which isn't? Uh, explainable or rational, right? It's not reasonable uh, to have done it. So I can't give you a reason for what's not reasonable, um, which at the one hand, when I try to, sh when I show this passage is to undergrads, you know, they're, they're sort of like, I kind of get it, but like, I still want to know why you did it. <laughs> or, like, you know, there's sort of that like feeling of like, I feel like you're getting off too easy here, Augustine. You're just saying, <laughs> I won't give you an explanation because, you know, that, 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 that basically, how can you give a reason for what is unreasonable? You're calling it a contradiction or something. And so there's no explanation. And I, I mean, I think, I think it's kind of clever, but I know that there is a, there's often a quite of a backlash. Like, well, that just, that just seems too cute uh, to, to deal with this. Yeah. I mean, this is where the, like the pair, the pair, the pair stealing scene and confessions and stuff is super useful. You, if you actually, actually ask yourself why you sin, it's a, it's a slippery, slippery question. I mean, you will, you will, have reasons uh at the kind of first order reasons that you can give why you did something you know you um why you steal you steal because you want the money or because you, you want the pair in augustine's case you want the deliciousness of the pair but augustine's right like when you actually think about it sometimes you do, that's not actually why you do it and when you right. think about why you do it it's actually um it's actually not clear that there is a reason especially when you when you really zero in on not just that you wanted the money, but you wanted it in this way. And don't you realize that the things that you really want, you would you would get more easily if you didn't sin. That the sin is actually counterproductive to the things that you want. And once you see that, and you realize that actually this is coming out of a, a, a place of um, either confusion, or in some cases, not even confusion, just kind of malice, just kind of like a, an insufficient willing of the goods that you say you want um and a, and a kind of spite almost against the good once you see that you'll realize that actually maybe there isn't a reason i can give for that um now it's a very it's it's very complicated psychologically but it's a deep and important point uh, also metaphysically because it means that we when we act we act for the good always but there are certain kinds of actions which are in some sense not actions they're sort of de defections from action and that this is this is one way you get at this idea that sin is a kind of defect because mm -hmm. you're not actually acting for a positive good in any sense. The good, of course, is God. And in those moments, you're not actually acting for God. You're not desiring God. You're acting in this kind of spite um, to, to kind of avoid God or get away from God in a certain sense. Yeah, 
Yeah, that's very helpful. And I think to some, like, you know, I, I'm trying to remember the full structure of the book. Uh, and, and so at one point you deal with the problem of freedom. Um, and so what does it mean for God to be free and what does it mean for us to be free? So there's another sort of worry here. Uh, you know, am I really free uh, to to do this thing? Um, and and so, uh, you know, and it doesn't, you know, the the, the kind of the difficulty I find when, again, when teaching a lot of this stuff to undergrads is that you, you know, you have to take the phrase reasonable or rational in a way that they don't really like, uh, which, um, and, and as if like anything, any explanation given is reasonable or is, is a good reason or something like, and then in the case of freedom, you know, we tend to think of like, a, and you bring this up in the book, you know, I think, I think the sort of 21st century notion of freedom is a choice among options. I always give the example of, you know, you go to the, uh, you go to the grocery store and you can pick a toothpaste tube of toothpaste and it doesn't matter which brand you choose. Um, and so you're free because you get to choose from, uh, you know, from Crest and Dentine and whatever else. Uh, so that feels like freedom to us is to have options. Uh, but your notion of freedom for, for, for God and for us is actually slightly different such that we can say we're free, but it's not in this kind of it, well, at least exactly analogous to this one that I just uh, stated. But so could you say something about how freedom works on, on your picture? Yeah, that's right. So just to kind of tie it back to the structure of the book for a second. So the, the kind of stuff we're talking about um, with God causing our actions, but us also causing them, that was kind of, pri I was describing it in terms primarily applicable to this level of efficient cause we were talking about with the mm -hmm. plainness, where that's kind of what our everyday sense of what causing means we think and tend to think in terms of efficient cause but then when we talked about the pairs and the kind of giving reasons that that is also a form of causality it answers the why question why did you do this and then you give a reason why in terms of what you wanted the kind of end or goal and that's a that's the explanation in terms of final causality right that's aristotle's idea also in these neoplatonists now we're moving so that that is kind of the first two chapters of the book. Now we're moving to this this third sense of causality, which I indicated at the beginning, which is exemplary causality, and that's a little more slippery. We're not used to thinking in terms of that as causing, but the basic right. idea is that that um, the the efficient cause of something has to contain in it the the idea of the effect in some sense in order to produce the effect. It's sort of like this idea of an artist has the idea of the painting he wants to make, and then he efficiently causes that idea to be present on the canvas, say. Exemplary causality is that that idea in the artist's head, as it were, or contained in the artist. It doesn't have to be intellectual in this way. It can also be um, like the form of, of humanity. My humanity is passed on to my kids. In me, that humanity is the exemplary cause of the humanity in them, of their human nature, right? They get it from me. Um, and similarly with God, God contains in this exemplary way, all the goodness that's in creation, because it had to come from somewhere. You can't get something from nothing. It had to come, God caused creation into being. And so there pre-exists in God, in an eternal way, all the goodness in a perfect form that's in creation, right? So we're all, all our goodness are, Im, are imitations of God's goodness in some sense, or participations in, resemblances of, there's lots of language you can use for this. So that also includes our freedom. Our freedom to the degree that it's good is an imitation of God's freedom or a participation in God's freedom or this kind of language, right? It came from God. It pre-exists in God. Now, the, the tricky thing about that is that God can't do evil, right? So you, on the, so you have this idea that, yeah, the, the persons of the Trinity are freely loving each other. Um, 
And that's the perfect form of freedom. That's the best kind of freedom. It's not like a less or a different kind of freedom than ours. It's the perfect ideal to which ours is just an approximation. They can't do evil. So how, why is it that our freedom should involve an ability to do evil? Because you also have all this, you know, all these, everything I've said is a very traditional set of affirmations, but you also have in, in the Christian tradition, this appeal to freedom as an explanation for why evil exists in the world, right? Adam and Eve were free. They had to, they had to be free in order to really love God. And that meant they could say no to God. But that last little bit that freedom means they can say no actually isn't true of God's freedom. And it's also not true, interestingly, of Christ's human freedom. So Christ, uh, if you follow the early councils, Christ has a human will and a divine will. The human will of Christ is perfectly free because Christ is without sin. And that perfect freedom doesn't involve an ability to say no to God. It doesn't seem like, at least on traditional, on traditional grounds. Christ couldn't say, as you know, as a, as a, his divine will saying yes to the Father, and then his human will says, no way, actually, no, Father. That's, a, that's impossible on the classical, right. on the classical view. And, and part of the reason for that is because his human freedom is perfected by saying yes to, yes to God in this, in this kind of firm, unswerving way. Um, and that's not a, that's not like less freedom. That's more freedom. That's the point. And if you and if you look at scripture too, um, when scripture talks about freedom, it's it's in this way. Freedom means the freedom from sin, right? Freedom means the ability not to deny God, the ability to affirm God. And the more the more firm you are in your affirmation of God, the freer you are. That's mm-hmm. that's how it works in the Old Testament. That's that's what Exodus is about, right? The freedom from slavery as this type of the freedom that Christ gives us is a type of freedom from sin. When Paul talks about freedom, it's all it's all about this kind of stuff. So so it's also confirmed with how scripture uses it. And that's part of the reason, you know, the early Christians are are using this idea of freedom. And so yeah. on my view, I, I follow all that stuff. And my on my view, you need something else other than freedom, but kind of in the vicinity of freedom to explain why we can sin. Um, and that's and that's where I, I build out this this other account of of um, of self-createdness so what mm-hmm. i call self-createdness yeah 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 well and one thing i was just thinking of as you were speaking uh one one other sort of there's sort of two streams of the podcast and in one of them where we read through ancient texts and kind of talk through them and we've been working through some of the christological debates and one of the difficulties in trying to uh, explain what's going on uh if, you know with cyril with nestorius with these kind of figures is that we tend to think of ourselves as the exemplary humans and God as the exemplary God. Uh, whereas Christ is, or, you know, Jesus as human is actually the exemplary human, not us. Um, and, and so the fullest form of what it means to be human is not found in sinful humans, uh, but is found in the perfect Christ. Um, and, and that can be a kind of difficult, uh, premise to begin with or maybe not premise is not even the right word there but way of thinking um and and so and that's also one of the first things i find uh myself you know when i'm reading through this stuff is like okay i gotta i gotta think differently (laughs) i gotta realize that you know and 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 in a sense it can be sort of frustrating because you know you you want you actually want to say like well, really, humans are sort of less than human. Um, not, and, and, and there's like a sense in which all of us fail to be human. Um, and, we, and, there's, and we kind of balk at that. Uh, but then, you know, when you think about it in terms of, of the, the Christian story, as you're just saying, like, well, actually, this is hopeful um, in the sense that we're being drawn into this full humanity of Christ. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, you know, 
it's the it's the fall, right? And the, the famous phrase about the fall is sort of the one theological doctrine that is you can confirm empirically. I mean, just look around. <laughs> of course, we're less than human in some sense, right? Look at what happens in the world. Um, so yeah, it is a it is a measure of hope, and it's it's frankly deeply unrealistic to expect that um, we could get an account of the human without without revelation, without seeing it perfected in Christ. Um, yeah. Because again, I you know. There's there's lots of different there's lots of different um, varieties of human on offer and um, they're constantly changing. There's a deep uh, there's a deep uncertainty about what actually constitutes the human. There's persistent long running disagreements that don't seem resolvable just by just by our fallen reason about what the human is. Um, and so of course we're going to need we're going to need revelation first first to Israel and then of course finally in Christ to, to be able to see what the human is. Well, I want to move um, to talk a little bit about sort of God's creation and our self-creation, and then eventually that moves into the question of analogy. So how do we, you know, make this leap from what we understand to what God understands? Uh, but I, one question I like to ask, and I don't know, as we were talking, I was just curious. Uh, I'll often ask my guests, what is one thing uh, through either in your life of, of sort of faith and theology or just in this research? What is one thing you've changed your mind on? Uh, so this is going to be a hard shift. Um, so we through the argument of the book, but I'm going to make a hard shift just, just to switch things up. What's one thing uh, that you have changed your mind on um, in either either like I had some guy talk about changes where he went to college. He thought he was destined for one place. He went to another or it can be something like as you're doing the research for this book, you realize that you had to have a different view on analogy or something. I don't know. Uh, it, it, you know, so is there, so there anything that you could think of where you could say, I once thought this thing was true and I changed my mind um, and now I'm going, you know, now I think that that's false. Yeah, well, I mean, the the easiest example, the starkest example is um, is that I, I was more of a libertarian about freedom in this sense that I thought freedom had more to do. Freedom uh, in its essential definition was a, about an ability to say no to God. And then I, you know, just sort of engaging with the text and thinking about the theological implications of that, I came around to this more compatibilist view, compatibilism being the idea that our freedom is compatible with being predetermined by God. Um, and so if God moves us to choose him, um, he can do that in a way that totally preserves our freedom. Um, so that was, that was a change. Now I didn't putting it just like that, that baldly overstates the difference because I did, I, I still do hold on to some more libertarian sense of freedom. I don't think we should call it freedom. Um, but I think that we need something like that to help with the problem of evil. Uh, so I, I don't, I don't, I didn't leave that behind. But the kind of way I sort out my categories is pretty different than uh, than initially I had I had thought. In part because I, again, I was I had this kind of analytic philosophical interest background, and for them, the vast majority of them, um, Christian philosophers in particular, tend to think of freedom in this libertarian way, precisely because of the kind of problem of evil issues. Um, so that's, that's one, that's one. There's other, you know, there's lots yeah, of different ways helpful. things can change. Um, so, yeah. And, and so for you, the change came about through reading the, just the literature or was there something that, you know, uh, it worked better in your scheme or, or just, uh, what, what, uh, anything in particular that made you, uh, change that perspective? Yeah. Thinking about how it, how it works in the larger scheme of, kind of Christian philosophical theology about what it, what it means for 
freedom to be both a good thing and for all good things to be imitations of God or participations in God. Um, really taking that seriously. I mean, there is, so this is a book about, you know, predestination and free will in a certain sense, uh, whether God determines our choices, how that has to do with sin and evil. And um, in that world, there's a lot of attention given to God causing our choices as an efficient cause. So mm-hmm. what, what that means for God to, to be involved in our acts. Uh, and again, I, you know, I take a position on that, but uh, that's a, there's a huge literature on that in all the major confessions uh, after the, after the reformation, you know, basically every major confession has a debate uh, in the Lutherans in the reform tradition in the Catholics. It's, and it's the same kind of stuff. It's the same set of issues in each one. Um, but, but what's, what's less explored is this idea of exemplary causality. Um, and I, I found myself gravitating more towards that as a serious issue that really hadn't been worked on sufficiently in the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and this question of, well, what, what does it mean to be free if God is, is the kind of archetype ideal of our freedom? Um, mm-hmm. And then Christ, that is our freedom, just the, any possible freedom, angelic freedom, any kind of freedom. And then Christ as a human being is the, is the perfection of human freedom. Um, mm-hmm. And neither of those involve an ability to do evil. So just sort of, sort of thinking through, especially, especially that level of exemplary causality uh, is what is what kind of ticked it off for me interesting um well okay so let's let's keep going then so how is it that you understand this relationship between our freedom uh and uh uh, divine freedom so if we're imitating uh god's freedom but we can choose to sin how does that and that's i think that's where your phrase of self-created comes into play right so like god can create ex nihilo um and and i think the phrase you use is non in nihilum or something not into nothing um so could you talk a little bit how that how that works yeah so instead of instead of locating our ability um, to sin, to, to not sin. So uh, instead of identifying that with our freedom, I want to say it's, it's a, it's a consequence of being free in imperfect under imperfect circumstances. So in a sense, it's a, it's a weakness of our freedom that we can sin. And this is picking up on stuff in, in like Irenaeus, for instance, on Adam and Eve being not totally perfect in the garden, right? Even before Mm -hmm. the fall, there's a kind of weakness there. There's a kind of development that they're supposed to undergo, an immaturity. And the point is that they're supposed to grow and then eventually become perfect. Um, and so at the level of freedom, that means, and Augustine has stuff like this too, right? The, 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 the fourfold state of freedom, right? Pose peccare, non pose non peccare, this kind of stuff in Augustine. It's a similar idea that you're supposed to progress from an ability to sin ultimately into an inability to sin that perfects your freedom. So I'm picking up on that, but I, but I want to say, that this imperfect state of freedom also represents certain real goods. It makes certain goods possible. And those goods are not goods of freedom. They're goods of this kind of self-createdness. So they allow us to, to create ourselves in a certain sense, which of course is a weird phrase for somebody who has a, a non-competitive account of divine and human agency, because it seems like any kind of self-creation that we could do is going to be downstream of God and therefore up to God in some sense. God's going to be the author of that. Whereas what I'm trying to say is that there's some a kind of self-createdness that is up to us and not to God, be, precisely because it's supposed to explain our ability to sin or not sin. And I don't want to I don't want God on the hook for our sinning mm-hmm. and not sin. So on my view, with this kind of self-creation, it's you know it's going to be complicated to work out the details uh, and to to make sure all the I's are dotted and T's are crossed. So for that, you have to look at the book. But the basic idea is that yeah. when we 
when we could sin, that is, we could create a kind of uh, defect or a nothingness, a kind of absence in our acts, when we could do that and we don't, that means we're not, we're not sort of bringing ourselves to nothing, to the nothingness out of which God created us. That's the idea. So mm. basically, you know, if you, when you sin, you're, you're sort of destroying yourself in a certain sense. That's the idea. You're, you're bringing yourself back into the nothingness out of which God has created you and out of which God call, continues to call us all, right? God doesn't want us to sin. He wants us to live flourishing lives, right? The glory of God is man fully alive, as Irenaeus is famously quoted as saying. So, so God wants that, but we can, we can reject that, and we can, we can return to that nothingness. When we return to that nothingness, that's a use of our imperfect freedom, as I said, and that's a bad thing. I don't want to say that's a good thing. I want to say that's just right. a bad thing. But when we could do that and we don't, I want to say that represents a distinct kind of good, the not going into nothing, that is a kind of imitation of God's calling us out of nothingness. And in that mm -hmm. sense, there's a kind of self-createdness to it. Um, and so it doesn't involve, metaphysically, it doesn't involve giving up this non-competitive account. So it ends up being very mm -hmm. traditional in the sort of Christian Platonist metaphysics of it. But it allows us to talk about sin in this, in this way that, that feels that feels true to what other people have said in this more libertarian tradition have said about, oh, well, we can still reject God. And when we don't reject God, there's a kind or like our actions have a kind of independence of God in a certain sense. And that independence is sort of like us creating ourselves. So there is language right. in the tradition of us creating ourselves as well, although some people are are wary of that. And, you know, in the in the modern period, that that kind of language gets used very much to be a kind of right. like we are rivals of God, we can create ourselves. So it's a, it's a certain kind of dangerous language. And I'm trying to, to repristinate it, as it were, to baptize it, to put it back in the schema of this kind of Christian Platonism, um, while, while also holding on to all that's that's good in it. Yeah, yeah, it, it strikes me, uh, the language of self creation, like there's a there's a fear, right, that uh, uh, from from Augustine and others, right, that, that what Adam tries to do in the garden is to make himself into the divine. Um, and and so it's sort of the 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 flip side of of theosis or divinization uh, or deification um is the the sort of grasping at uh cr making oneself the divine um and so augustine thinks that that's that's the 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 root sin of pride um is thinking that one could make oneself god so so this has to be a self-createdness in a secondary sense that isn't uh the kind of um yeah primordial sin of adam yeah that's right and there's a kind of you know for those who are into the sort of genealogies of modernity, how modernity destroys everything, there's one one way this is traced is sometimes like is, is exactly this way. Modernity is the is the sin of Adam repeated at this kind of like large scale level where we become self creators um, over nature, over ourselves, and uh, and that re represents a defection from the the beautiful medieval synthesis or whatever. I, I tend to be suspicious of those narratives, as you may be able to tell, and I want partly. Partly, I want to hold on to some of what I think is good in that in that kind of modern sense that we are self creators in some sense. We do some of this like sort of romantic and pre romantic notions of of human agency and mastery and ability. I think are good. I think are ultimately Christian. I think they're rooted in in Christianity. And so I want to I want to try to hold on to that without making it without making it idolatrous, right? 
Yeah, I think there's an art there's a, a an article on love. It may just be called love. I can't remember from Herbert McCabe where he talks about love is sort of essentially doing what you say, which is releasing one to do some self-creation. And so it's not predetermining every single sort of thing or, you know, I, I can't remember exactly the language, but it, it is interesting when I, I just I just think of. Uh, so I, I teach at a Catholic Jesuit university. Uh, so I teach at St. Louis University, but uh, most of the students that I have. I'd say the majority probably aren't um, committed Catholics or Christians. Um, and so, you know, historically it's Catholic Jesuit, but let's say at least a large number um, do not sort of think of themselves still in that tradition. And so it, it's interesting the kind of things that appeal to them. Um, and, and so sort of Augustine, uh, uh, fall in this sin, People don't tend to reject a lot of that. Uh, they don't like Augustine usually. Uh, but when I have them read this article, uh, some articles by Herbert McCabe, um, they find some affinities. And one of them is this sort of like recognition that there there is a sort of part of the love that God has for his creatures is a permission of some kind of self-creation. So it's interesting that that, that tends to uh, resonate um, with some of my students. So I wonder, you know, and so I think what's helpful in what, I mean, what, you know, one way I guess I could turn them uh, back into the great tradition is in a work like yours where you're saying, all right, let's think about, okay, that's a good, there's a good intuition there, but how do we get that set right? Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I, <laughs> I worry that it, you know, there's the, the path back is so, is so long and difficult that it, it might not be for many. Um, but it is, uh, I think there is something, I think the basic intuition is good there. Um, I, I'm the more, the more you want to have that kind of thing without the sort of fall stuff, the more suspicious I'm going to be. <laughs> I think you need to, you need to run them both up pretty high, uh, in order for everything to work. Like you need the, you need the fall in this, you need the, the disorder in nature or else you're going to, you're going to end up with, with some of the errors, the ways that modernity has taken this stuff, um, poorly. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, you know, and I'm, I'm just speaking off the cuff about my experience of my students. Of so, yeah. you know, that's not to say that all of them or, or what have you, but it's, it is just always, it's like, I feel like run, so I, I do a lot of Theo 1000 and I feel like they're oftentimes like me running surveys on what do 18 to 22 year olds <laughs> think? <laughs> and, and they're not often very talkative, which is the least amount of fun for me because I feel like I'm up and I'm like, this is, I'm, I feel like I'm sort of doing like a market research. Um, <laughs> you know, the, there's a little bit of like, Hmm, what resonates and what doesn't? And, you know, how can I nudge them a little bit, uh, towards, uh, thinking in more sort of classic, uh, and, uh, Christian terms. Um, and so fine, fine. Okay. What's why I could draw you in just a little bit and say right. this, there, there may be more to this than you realize. That's right. That's right. My, my, my students tend to be in a kind of different population because they tend to be pretty committed, non-denominational sort of Protestant types. Um, so and they yeah yeah so they they're they're receptive to the to the notion of sin. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's I mean now we're we're moving away from the book a little bit, but I guess I am just sort of curious how is so one thing you do call this book a Catholic essay. So you know you sort of state up front like if you're a really determined sort of Calvinist, you're not going to find this persuasive because you have sort of a a large uh, I, I don't know a, a larger sense of God's sovereignty or something um, to you know so it's not going to be as um, 
you're not going to be as amenable to it. But how do you find teaching sort of more non-denominational students in Oregon and the Northwest um, with your very strongly Catholic Thomistic intuitions? And uh, like, is that is that difficult to try to like, OK, do I, I have to sort of recatechize them in some of these uh, ancient uh, doctrines of the church? Uh, I don't know. What, what is that like for you? Uh, there's, there's some of that. I mean, so I teach at the honors program here, which is a, which is a great books program. Um, and so we read a fair amount of primary sources, um, Mm. throughout the tradition. Um, and so even, even apart from my own kind of predilections, they're getting this stuff just by reading Augustine or reading Athanasius, um, John of Damascus, and then all the way through, you know, we do Aquinas, we do Bonaventure. And so, um, really all the way through the tradition, or even just like I, like I kind of alluded to before, even reading some of the magisterial reformers, you know, the, the reading some of Luther's stuff, it's very different than the kind of Protestantism they're used to and much more traditional, much more classical Luther stuff. You know? Right. Um, we, we don't read his like super high Mariology stuff. We should maybe, uh, you know, cause he has a high view of Mary. So some of this stuff that like to an American Protestant is, is kind of shocking, right? Shockingly Catholic or Luther on the Eucharist for this is, that's another great example, right? Luther's, um, Luther's debates against Swingley. So, um, so yeah, some of my, some of my interventions are at that level, um, just kind of introducing them to a broader, a broader swath of the, of the tradition and helping them see that, uh, that you can't, uh, you can't assume that, you know, Christianity was what some, some people in California in the seventies thought it was, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my students, it's like they get it from their pastor and their parents and yeah. they were trained in some, you know, they came out of Redding, California in the 80s or mm-hmm. something like that. And actually, there's like a, a broader, richer tradition here, um, both in Protestantism and in Catholicism. And so often it's at that it's at that kind of level that uh, mm-hmm. that I'm working. Um, but, you know, it's not it's like it's like Kierkegaard says, like you can't. You can't make people choose these things. All you can do is make mm-hmm. them aware. You know, you make them aware and then for the choice is theirs. It's up to them and the yeah. Holy Spirit, you know. So you, you kind of introduce them to this stuff. And some of them just like don't resonate with it at all. And they're like, forget mm. that. I'm going to be evangelical or I'm going to, it's, it's the Northwest, it's the Pacific Northwest. It's very progressive area, broadly speaking. Right. And some of that seeped into the churches, including the evangelical churches. So there's a kind of progressive evangelicalism, not so much at Fox, but in the larger milieu. Mm. And so mm-hmm. some of them will, some of them will just, you know, that resonates with them. Yeah. Well, I don't have uh, much longer, um, and I appreciate you. St- I mean, to s- sometimes my interviews uh, go a little further afield from the book. I feel like the the book is uh, is very rich and, and in a sense difficult. Um, you know, to some people who are you know my podcast are not always as philosophical. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I appreciate you being willing to kind of think through a lot of this. But you end with, and one of the things that was sort of, um, kind, you know, one thing that I realize more and more uh, that that is at the center of a lot of theology, um, I guess also philosophy at, at the place where these two kind of intersect, um, is this question of analogy. Um, and so like, and how how is that... Um, you know, you talk a little bit about SCOTUS being a little more of a, a, like having a, a univocal theory of language uh, about the divine and uh, to, to miss, uh, Thomas having a more um, uh, like sort of the analogia entis and these sorts of things, having more of an analogy. Uh, but uh, but yeah, could you say something about how that helps think through the sort of final piece of your of your argument? Yeah, so um, 
there's lots of debates about this. This was a very, this was a very hot topic in 20th century theology too. Um, the idea that God is analogously related to us, um, and so essentially that we this this is this is the idea of exemplary causality again that mm. our goodness, our justice, our wisdom are analogously related to God's justice, God's goodness, God's wisdom, and so. We have kind of analogies in the in the world in the, in creatures for what exists in in God in the Creator, um, and that's all we have in this life. We don't have direct vision, so we can't see God's goodness or God's justice. We only we can only make analogies from the goodness and justice that we see in this world, and then we say, okay, God's God's is like that, but of course more perfect. God's is mm-hmm. like that, but a kind of infinite version of that. God, God's wisdom is like our wisdom, but without any defects, right? Um, so you scrub it of all, of all imperfection. You raise it to this kind of like infinite level, and then, and that that's maybe clear enough. Uh, but then it gets super weird because actually, if you follow this classical tradition, God's wisdom isn't just infinite and standing alongside God's justice, but actually, God's wisdom is His justice is his mercy, is his truth. All these things are equal signs. They're, they're, they're really identical in God. So we can make conceptual distinctions between them, but what they are, what they're naming in God is only one, is one simple thing, God's essence, mm-hmm. which just is these things. Um, and, that, and that means that whatever we mean by, you know, what we mean by wisdom is not identical with what we mean by justice, is not identical with what we mean by mercy. But in God, somehow these things are really identical. And that means that our conception of these things, which involves in part them being distinct from one another, our conception of them is needs to be broken open in a certain sense when we apply them to God. And so I, I call this the kind of process of rupture. So we have to kind of break yeah, our yeah. concepts in a certain way in order when, when we start applying them to God. And so the analogy, you know, in an analogy, there's going to be something that's similar, elements that are similar, and there's going to be elements that are different. And when we make this analogy to God, we always have to be careful that we're like breaking the stuff a little bit to make sure that it's different when we apply it to God. And we, the, the, the really tricky thing is we don't get to see the other side of the analogy. So we don't get to know exactly how it's different. We know like we have certain techniques for breaking it. Like, like we can say, oh, it's the same. It's, it's really identical with these other perfections that are also in God. Um, so we have, or, or another technique we use for breaking it is, is we'll use paradoxes, right? So we'll say Gregory of Nyssa in the life of Moses says he's, you experience this dazzling darkness. It's a darkness, but it's brilliant. It overwhelms you. It's like the brightness of the sun. When you, if you look at it, it blinds you. So you use these kind of paradoxical terms as a way of kind of breaking open your concepts so that they apply more adequately to God. Because what we can't do is we can't say, oh, look, here's wisdom in us. And look, there's wisdom in God. And look, there's an analogy between these two things. It doesn't work that way. We don't get to see God. We have to still think about God. We have to be able to have some grasp on what he's like so that we can love him right because we need to be at we need to have some cognitive content something there cognitively in order to elicit an act of love but but we have but it's very imperfect it's very imperfect in this life even with faith even with the grace of faith and and revelation and christ coming you know christ doesn't come and give us immediately like the beatific vision the direct vision of the father we see the father in christ and we see we see the divinity of christ in his humanity 
right? That's what we touch. That's what we see. That's what we interact with. That's what's described in scripture. We see the divinity through that. And we see the divinity of the father through the divinity of the son, the image of the father, right? But that's what we've got in this life. And so it's this sort of steps upward that are analogous, but not direct. Yeah, that's, uh, that's very, uh, it's well stated. And so as far as like, so for you, that plays into this question of our freedom, uh, or yeah. And so, so to kind of work out the, the end there, this is what makes it possible for us to say that we're free, but not free in the same way that God is. Um, and then our freedom can lead, uh, into the, the, the sin that we might call like do, uh, but not God, but God not being responsible. Is that, is that about right? Uh, yeah, in a sense that it means that, so what I, what I try to do is I develop out of a, an account of this analogy as this kind of, um, similarity, but also there's this kind of rupture or something that has to happen to our concepts. I try mm -hmm. to develop out of that an account, both of how our freedom imitates God's freedom. Freedom will be another thing like, like wisdom or justice. Our freedom is, per, is perfect in God, but then also to give an account of how our self-createdness imitates God's uncreatedness. So God is oh, self-created. Right. God is uncreated. So yeah. our self-createdness isn't exactly analogous to God. It's not like there's some perfect self-createdness in God. There is a perfect self-createdness in the humanity of Christ. But that's because the humanity of Christ is created by the by the person, the divine person that is the word, right? So, so Christ is self-created in a kind of more absolute sense than any of us can be because his humanity is entirely created by his divine, the divine person that is the subject of his humanity. For us, our subject can't be, can't like create ourselves because God has to create the subject before we can self-create in this sense. And so ours is Im an imperfect imitation of Christ's self-createdness. But neither of those, this is where it's getting slightly more te technical. The point is that neither form of those self-creatednesses is is an analogy to God's self-createdness because there is no self-createdness in God. God is uncreated. So the point is that, that there are certain features of God that aren't analogous to features in creation. They're just different then. They're, they're, ne right. they're negated, right? So that mm -hmm. they indicate not an analogous relationship. They indicate the difference in every analogous relationship. So another example of this would be infinitude. There's God is infinite, right? It's a denial of limits of finitude in God. Our, we can be like bigger, bigger, bigger as creatures, indefinitely large if you want, but we can't be infinite in the way that God is infinite. And so mm -hmm. there's a similar kind of thing there where it's not that like by being really, really good at, at whatever, that we're analogous to God's infinitude. Mm -hmm. It's instead, it's this kind of approach we approach god's infinitude in a certain sense by being more of what we are more good more existent whatever you want to say and yeah. so that there's certain these what, what are sometimes called god's formal features these kind of negative terms infinity uncreatedness um atemporal right eternal outside of time things like that and those those are things that aren't analogies they're built into the logic of analogy but we we imitate them in a different way than we imitate these analogous features. And so the, the basic yeah, project of that, of that kind of part of the book is to say self-createdness is one of these not analogous features like freedom. It's a different kind of imitation of God. It imitates in the way that this sort of like uh, approach, we approach God's uncreatedness by being more self-created. Mm-hmm. 
So yeah. that's, it's somewhat complicated, but it is, it's sort of trying to develop this, this more variegated sense of how we imitate God or resemble God. Instead of just having analogy, it sort of looks at how the building blocks out of which analogy is built and talks about how different features can have these different forms of imitation. Not everything is analogous. Yeah, I think uh, it just uh, it just strikes me uh, having re been reading a little bit of Maximus the Confessor and talking with uh, Jordan Wood. I think he uses the tantum quantum principle. I, I think that comes from Maximus, but where as as far as uh, uh, the the word became human, so far the human becomes God. Um, and so there's there's sort of this. I, I don't know how comfortable you are with deification language, uh, but but so for Maximus, this is an important principle. And my thought was like as much as whatever it means in the hypostatic union for the logos to be both fully God and fully human, it's that that descent into humanity. So also our ascent into the divinity uh is is basically as great as his descent was as our ascent um is is the the idea of the principle but anyway i don't it, it's it, i don't know how that would work within self-createdness because it seems they're so well but i guess in there the, my thought was because we're so different uh right so the 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 essential difference between divinity and humanity being you know uncreated versus created and whatever whatever we want to say about the 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 incarnation and and the hypostatic union it is the thing that unites these two essentially different uh things yeah that's right that's right so i'm i'm i, I love the deification stuff i'm i'm totally fine with that and uh i think uh what i'm trying to do is just give a, a more um granular account of how of what that deification looks like that doesn't cross any lines, right? So the, like one line that might be crossed is to say, well, actually the humanity becomes uncreated. And I say, no, 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 that's, that's not <laughs> what happens, right? Um, so there is still this, the fundamental distinction between God, creator and creatures, a distinction that, like you say, is preserved in Christ. Um, that's part of the Chalcedonian formula, right? So it, mm -hmm. it's not that Christ um, erases that distinction, but he overcomes it in a different way, not by erasing it, it's still preserved, but he overcomes it through through a union, through a hypostatic union mm. of these two things that allows us to take on divine properties in a non-divine way. That is, we get these divine properties by grace rather than by nature. That's one traditional way of saying it, right? Right. Um, or we, we get it in this self-created form rather than in, in an uncreated form. Um, and then just down the list, we get it in a finite way rather than an infinite way, whatever. You can kind of go down the list on these on these sorts of things. Yeah, I think that's uh, just talk, like, I mean, again, now I'm having a conversation about another book that you haven't read. Uh, but I know that that's one of the concerns that uh, that Jordan has in or well, that's one of the things that people have responded to Jordan uh, is that he seemed, you know, he's worried that are they, often people are worried that he's getting a little too close to just eviscerating uh, this distinction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you talked with David Bentley Hart about that, but I think there's been some worry with his most recent book on this topic about that. But I haven't, I haven't read the book. So these people who do the, you know, the kind of Maximus uh, and like turn up the Greek patristic stuff to eleven, they can sometimes sound like that. I, I think it's fine. I'm usually okay with it. Usually, if you if you push them on it, they're they're careful to have some distinctions in the right places, and they're, it's a kind of rhetorical effect to a certain extent. Um, so so I appreciate it. Yeah, well, I when we talked uh, with Dr. Hart, it was on tradition and apocalypse, uh, so it wasn't on the the You Are Gods book. Um, I actually haven't read the the You Are Gods yet, um, but uh, I mean, 
you know, you could sort of tell where he was going, uh, e even in the, the previous book, uh, that all shall be saved or something. Um, so I, I, I actually also work with Mike McClymond at St. Louis university. Um, and he wrote a big book on sort of the history of universalism, you know, and the devil's, I think it's called the devil's redemption. Um, and, uh, but yeah, so he's really worried, uh, about, <laughs> about the sort of implications of, of, of Hart's theology. So listeners can check out my conversation with Dr. McClymond too, but, uh, yeah. Well, uh, ultimately, I've kept you uh, too long, um, and, and but I uh, I have you know learned a lot uh, both from this conversation and from the book "Freedom and Sin: Evil in a World Created by God." Um, so I just want to say uh, thank you to Dr. McCullough for uh, spending an hour with me and and being a part of uh, history of Christian theology. Thanks, Dad. My pleasure.